Hi, everyone. It's Melinda Garvey with the See It To Be It podcast. This week, we have another great interview with an incredible role model. Stay tuned. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the See It To Be It podcast. I'm your host, Melinda Garvey, and excited to be here with you this month with another one of our absolutely fabulous female role models. And today, I'm excited to introduce you to Madam Sella Ward, and she is lots of things. She is an attorney and an activist and a slam poet and all kinds of other really cool things, and I'm going to let her tell you her story, but I just want to give her a warm welcome to the show today. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, I'm excited to let everyone hear your story. Of course, I've been doing some reading on you and got to watch your fun TED Talk. So we'll dive into that in a little bit, but I'm super excited for you to share your story today. As I'd like to do on all these podcasts, I love first just to go way back. You know, think about when you were growing up and what was your big dream? What do you think you'd be doing when you grew up? Now, when I was younger, I always had vision and uh, my vision was kind of based on, you know, my surroundings. But I always knew that I wanted to be an attorney when I was younger. When I was eight years old, I did a play in school and there was an attorney in it. And I really wanted to be in the attorney role. I think I might have been in third grade. And the teacher, she felt like a different student should have played it. Maybe somebody that was older and more polished. And I was insistent that I was supposed to play the attorney role. And after I did it, everybody was like, oh, you did a great job. And I knew at that point that kind of gave me the confidence at a very young age to really believe that I, I wanted to be an attorney and that I could be an attorney when I grew up. Not to mention, you know, I grew up in a community that didn't really have a lot of access to legal resources. My mom, my uncles and aunts, the people in my community, my peers were frequently getting abused by police officers in a criminal industrial complex. So seeing that firsthand made me really want to try to provide a resource that they didn't have at some point in my life. So I knew that I wanted to be an attorney very early. Wow. That's pretty amazing. I remember somebody telling me when I was young that I should be an attorney, but that's just because I like to argue all the time. <laughs> so like, <laughs> yours is a little different though. No, I love that. That's really great. And I think that, you know, sometimes people have that dream and they just know it early on and go for it. And sometimes the path is so windy and you finally end up there. But what I think is so interesting about you and sort of your career and all the things that you've done, I mean, I really kind of have to list all these career accomplishments. We talked about you being an attorney, you're an international business architect, you organize marches, like the largest march for women, you're the top female slam poet, which I love slam poetry, by the way, that's a whole other, like such a cool thing. And you've just done so many interesting different things. What I'd like to do is talk about sort of where you got your start. And, you know, you talk about that in your TED Talk and what it really taught you. And I'd love to just talk about that and sort of how that windy path, I mean, from that little girl who knew she wanted to be an attorney and where did you start? And then how did you sort of get on your path to becoming an attorney? You know, like I said earlier, I wanted to be an attorney when I was younger. There was a certain point in my life where I didn't think that was feasible because of my history. Most people didn't know when I became an attorney about my history. I was a sex worker between the ages of roughly about 12 and 19 years old on and off. And that came with police contact and other experiences. So there was a portion of my life where I started to think that being an attorney wasn't feasible for me anymore because of who I was on paper. But fortunately, I had 
examples in my life and reinforcements in my life that told me that, you know, I wasn't in my past and that everything that I had went through was happening for me instead of happening to me. So even when I wanted to give up on the idea of being an attorney, you know, I had to get thick skin and not be afraid of hearing no multiple times. And people tell me that I wasn't good enough because of the things that I had experienced that I would never be accepted. But it started really early. Well, and in fact, you even talk about that your time as a dancer and how it helped you develop your leadership skills. And I just think that's really interesting how, you know, you took even from a situation that from the outside looking in might seem like, how would you get leadership skills out of that? But just that you really took that and grew and learned from that. So I'd love for you just to talk a little bit about sort of what you learned and how that experience started to shape you. I was a dancer at one point, if, if you could call me a dancer, because I was the dancer that couldn't dance. So. <laughs> <laughs> if you could call me a dancer, that's so funny. As a sex worker, a lot of people are confused uh, about what that means. And dancing was a portion of that experience, but it was a small portion. When I, when I say sex worker, it's really a politically correct term for a person that exchanges sex for money. So some of that was in a club, but most of it was, you know, out in the open and in public in the parks and in the streets and trailer parks and community centers and things of that sort. At a little later point in life, when I started to look old enough to be in a club, that's when I started dancing. But that also came with, you know, being a little bit insecure because I wasn't as confident as some of the older girls, because a lot of times they were a lot older than me, or they looked more mature than I was because I was still a minor. I was still a child at the time during a portion of it. So one of my biggest struggles was that I couldn't dance, you know, so trying to be a dancer in a club where you couldn't dance was a lot of times comedy and I found ways around it. But in the environment, you see a lot of people that go through a lot of experiences and you really build this sisterhood, you know, because you can't always be in competition with each other anymore. You have to learn to protect each other because we knew that a lot of us were going to go through something. A lot of us might not make it. A lot of us you know, will be hurt. A lot of us will be abused. A lot of us might not get home. So we had to kind of develop this partnership and this bond to protect each other and this sisterhood that a lot of times we wouldn't have had had we not been in that experience together. So being in the clubs was a way that I really learned to embrace my sisterhood quite a bit. Yeah. And you even talk about building like a leadership model through the concept of family by heart. And I'd love to just for you just to talk a little bit about that as well and sort of what that means to you and how you think in the current environment that we're in, how that might really change how we all, you know, move forward. You know, a lot of us, we look different. We were all very different because when, when you're in the sex work industry, everybody, no matter how you look, there's somebody that has a particular preference for you, right? You know, it doesn't matter if you're short, if you're tall, it doesn't matter if you're black or white or Latino or Asian or Spanish, whatever you are, there's somebody that has a particular preference for you. So in the sex work industry, there were a lot of different girls that looked a lot of different ways. And we developed our love and our bond and our protection of each other as family, despite the fact that we all came from different backgrounds. A lot of the communities that I grew up with, they were Spanish and they taught me to embrace the concept of familia de corazón. So we started to learn to embrace each other as family because of our hearts and how we connected through each other and our experiences. And I definitely think that's something that I've had to learn to apply as I navigate through the world, even post-sex work as an adult. 
how to love people by their heart, how to embrace people by their heart and how to connect on an entirely different level. I definitely think it's something that we need on a larger level. Right now, one of our senators just got arrested yesterday, Parks, you know, in Georgia for knocking on Governor Kemp's door while he was signing a bill that was restricting voter rights. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, especially a lot of people on the conservative side are not really understanding what it means to be familiar with Cortathon, you know, to be able to support each other. And I'm so proud of what she did standing up for the family that couldn't stand up for themselves. So I definitely think that the idea and the concept of familia de Cortathon is something that we need to be practicing on both a national and an international level. Yes, absolutely. I know that you have been involved a lot in activism, and I want to kind of talk about how you got into activism. Was it because of your legal career? Is that something that fueled that? I was an activist before I became an attorney. Now I'm a business architect. I don't practice anymore. Before I became an attorney, I was an activist first, and that was just from being a product of my community and seeing so many people disenfranchised, so many people that were overlooked, so many people that weren't seen. So I started working for the National Organization for Women when I was young. I was an adult at the time. I had to be maybe 22 at the time when I first started working for them. And I worked for them for several years. But as you can imagine, just being in the sex work industry, especially when you're starting out so young, I was pregnant probably over 10 times and ended up getting an abortion in many cases. So one of the issues that was really important to me, especially coming from a position as uh, a minor who had been pregnant so many times and who had been working in the sex work industry, reproductive justice was a big, big issue and a big concern for me, especially when women's rights around reproductive justice was being threatened. So when I got into activism, a lot of it evolved around women's rights in the beginning so that I could protect the rights that was trying to be snatched away from us. I started working for the National Organization for Women, and through that, I ended up being recruited to organize the March for Women's Lives in 2004, which ended up being the largest march in the history of the United States on Washington for its time. So it wasn't law. Law came a little bit later. It it was life that, that got me into it. Well, so you became a lawyer and you went to law school. And I mean, let's face it, law is arguably traditionally male dominated and white male dominated. Did you have particular challenges that you had to overcome being a woman of color, getting through law school, launching your career, you know, just getting your footing in that field? I don't even know where to start there because there were so many things that I had to overcome as a woman of color in law, especially in this male-dominated field. Honestly, I don't even know where to start. It started even long before law school. The thing I'd like to say, you know, is that I'm so grateful. I grew up in this community of rock stars, right? And when I say rock stars, we're talking about people that are recovering and surviving crack cocaine addiction. When I was growing up, my mom never let me refer to them as crack addicts or people that were addicted to drugs or drug addicts or anything of that sort. We call them rock stars. We have to really be able to understand the history of of how crack cocaine was put into Black communities and targeted our communities to poison us and to be able to disenfranchise us. So they were definitely rock stars for being able to survive that. And one of the things just growing up around rock stars taught me was to never be afraid of hearing the words no. 
you know, one of the things that I always had that gave me leverage and empowered me over my peers was that I wasn't afraid of no one. I wasn't afraid of rejection. And that came from being in communities where I heard no all the time. Rock stars that were always told no. Like if you've ever been around rock stars, my uncle, he used to come and he would ask me for $5 every single time that I saw him. And I got so tired of him asking me for $5. I would tell him no a hundred times. And the next day he would come to me like I'd never told him no. Like this was the first time that he was asking me. And sometimes you would look at him like, wow, like didn't you just hear me tell you no yesterday? You know, and eventually you would just give him the $5 and tell him to go away and not, you know, they'll ask you anymore. And a lot of it just comes from, you know, if you have a goal, you can't be hung up over the hiccups that come along the way. I had to use that so much in my life. You know, when I first became an attorney or when I first went to law school, you know, I had to go through my background a little bit and tell them a little bit of my history. And that was a challenge. First of all, getting into a law school, not just any law school, but one of the top tier law schools in the country, you know, with my history was a challenge. I had to explain to them my background and convince them that I was worthy. And then even after I went to law school, just going in front of attorney regulation and going up the board and um, having to explain why I was worthy you know, which is also has its own roots in my history as well, being able to understand and value and appreciate my own self-worth. But, you know, having to explain that to a board of white men, you know, why you was worthy and why you should be practicing and why your community needs you was hard because they told me no a thousand times before I finally got a yes. And had I not been used to hearing no and used to not seeing that as a hard stop, just seeing that as an opportunity for me to explain to them what it was I was really offering them, then I would have never been able to become a lawyer in the first place. Even after I got licensed and I started practicing, there was a lot of firms that told me no because they didn't feel like I looked like the picture that they wanted wanted me to look like when I came into the office. Keep in mind that when I was practicing, I was practicing in Colorado, right? The percentage of African-Americans in Colorado was already um, less than 15%. I think it was maybe 13%, actually 11%. I think the nationwide it's 13%. And it was like 11% in Colorado. And this is coming from the South where I was used to being around 90% African-Americans. I went to Colorado where there was about 11% African-Americans there. But of attorneys in the entire state, there was less than 300 Black attorneys in the entire state of Colorado, period. So just trying to go to these you know, law firms and explain to them why it was important for Black basis to see other Black attorneys you know, was a challenge in itself. And then even after I started working for a firm, going in front of judges and getting them to the place where they can have empathy for the people that was coming in front of them in court as defendants was a journey. Um, I remember there were so many cases and you know, a lot of people was coming to me because myself and my partner that was working with me at the time, we were some of the only Black female attorneys that they could get access to that they even knew existed in the state. So a lot of our, our clients were African-Americans. And standing in front of these judges, I felt like I was, especially with, with young Black men, I felt like I was representing, you know, my brother, my biological brother. I felt like I was representing my father or my sons. So I, I took it personally every time we had to step in front of a judge. And when I would see these judges giving these young Black men, you know, relative life sentences, because they didn't understand their background or they saw them as being demonized. A lot of children, a lot of kids, you know, a lot of young Black girls that we would represent, they never got the opportunity to be seen as children. You know, they never got the opportunity to be seen as innocent. They never got the benefit of the doubt in anything that they were going through when they dealt with the criminal industrial complex because people
people didn't relate to them. They weren't used to being around young Black girls. So the young Black girls and the young Black men that went through the court system were getting sentences that were two times, three times, four times, five times the length of white men and white women that were in the same predicament. So there were so many cases, so many cases that we had to experience that didn't get the justice that they deserved. And not just with defendants, but even with attorneys, you know, because I do know real life examples of attorneys that did not get justice and that were treated differently because they were Black attorneys. So there are too many to mention (laughs) in a 20 minute interview. There were a lot. Well, it's interesting because it seems like that sort of this theme of repeatedly having to prove your worth and explain why you are worthy, it set you up perfectly for the amazing activism work you've done with Black Lives Matter. I was reading an article and about you hear a lot of people saying, you know, well, all lives matter, you know, and they just kind of missed the plot. It sounds like the work that you did and having to be in front of that Did it propel you into that work and create that passion for you around the Black Lives Matter movement? Well, I definitely think that, you know, what I experienced as a young girl helped me to be a lot more passionate about issues in Black Lives Matter that I probably would not have been passionate about. I remember when I was a young girl, I had to be maybe nine or 10 years old. Like I told you before, my mom, she was a rock star. And I remember driving around in a car with my mom at night whenever she would go on her missions. And a mission was basically when they were getting high. But my mom, she didn't like to be in one place when she was getting high. So she would drive around in the car and I would be in the back seat. And she would always tell me that my job was to look out for police officers because she didn't want to die. And I didn't understand why she felt like she got stopped by a police officer, she would die. But I took my job very, very seriously as a like nine or 10 year old little girl. So I would be in the back looking for police officers. But there was one time when she, we actually did get stopped. And if you've ever smelled crack cocaine, crack cocaine has a very distinct smell to it. You can smell when it's been burning in the room. So when the police officer pulled my mother over, you know, my mom, she swallowed the rest of the crack cocaine that she had with her. She swallowed it whole but the police officer could still smell that crack cocaine had been burning in the air. So he suspected that she had swallowed it. So he was so afraid of losing evidence. What he did in front of me was that he started choking her. He put his hands around her neck, trying to get her to spit up the crack. And he choked her so long that she ended up passing out in front of me. And I remember when she tried to explain to the authorities afterwards what happened and and to prove that this police officer had choked her until she passed out. Nobody really believed her story. Nobody in the community, nobody in the judicial system. So as I got older, I was always very sensitive to believing Black women when they say something is happening to them. And I think a lot of times what's happening is that, you know, the public, you know, the judicial system officials, they don't believe Black women the way that they need to believe Black women. And that's not just in the criminal industrial complex. That's when we're talking about politics. That's when we're talking about healthcare. That's when we're talking about our profession and our careers. When we're talking about our children, Black women in general are not being believed the way that other people are. So I definitely know that my history gave me more empathy and more passion to be able to work around these issues in the Black Lives Matter movement. This year, we just had the Protect Black Women's March on Washington, D.C. in October of 2020. And it was powerful because we addressed some of these issues around protecting Black women and believing Black women. And as we were organizing it and marching on Washington, I did remember some of the experiences that I had when I was younger. 
That's very powerful. In fact, I remember right at sort of the launch of the Me Too movement when everything, I mean, this was maybe four years ago, the company Bumble, it's based here in Austin. Whitney Wolf is the founder. She ran a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal. And all it said was believe women. And I think that there needs to be another full page ad in the Wall Street Journal that says believe black women. Because that was so profound and powerful to me. I actually tore it out. I kept it. I still have it. And people need to hear that. Just that simple statement. Thank you for sharing that story. That's really powerful. So let's talk a little bit about this last year. I mean, so much going on. Obviously, you as a business person, right? I mean, you as a woman, you as an activist with the social injustice issues, it's just been kind of a wild ride. So I'd just love to hear kind of a snapshot of your life in the last year and how things are going for you and any particular bright spots or challenges. I did get sick in the beginning of COVID-19, but I was able to recover from that. But my business architect firm, just to give you a little bit of information about business architecture, is that we help small to mid-sized companies build the infrastructure and operating system so that they can scale to enterprise level. So what happens is that we build the entire infrastructure of your company. I'm talking about infrastructure. Most business architects just focus on the internet aspect of things, but we build the entire infrastructure from the time you come into office, turn on the light, sit at the desk, you know, from the time you're recruiting, marketing, and selling your customers to the time that you are closing after customers and encouraging them to be repeat customers. We build out that infrastructure from scratch and model it around how you operate as a company. So that's what I've been doing for the last six years. But this year in particular, one thing that has been challenging to most small businesses is learning how to operate their companies on the digital level because now we're in this playing field where we can't touch each other anymore. We can't feel each other anymore. In a lot of cases, we have to be six feet apart. So a lot of the work that we have to do has to be online. So helping companies to be able to navigate post-COVID-19 and how their businesses and companies can still flourish and they don't have to reinvent the wheel and try to figure out how their businesses can thrive from scratch. I have always felt that the revolution was financial. Even when I was marching on Washington for women's rights or fighting in courtrooms for Black Lives Matter, I've always known that the revolution was financial and business architecture has given me this opportunity to deep dive into the finances. What's really interesting is that as I got older, I started doing more research and studying and understanding the archetype of the prostitute. A lot of people don't really know what that means, but there's four archetypes, which are basically models for human behavior that we all experience and watch. Um, a lot of people have heard of the inner child archetype. So we hear people talking about your inner child all the time, but they don't hear about the other archetypes. There's four. There's the inner child. There's the victim. There's the saboteur. And then there's the prostitute. Uh, the prostitute is the guardian of our self-worth, right? Studying that over the last decade has really given me some perspective on my own life and how my experience as a sex worker was a journey to my own self-worth. But we all have this prostitute archetype in our lives. Even if we've never been prostitutes in real life, we have the prostitute archetype in our lives in some way or form. And the prostitute archetype is the person that navigates through all of our 
exchanges. There's a positive aspect of the prostitute and then there's a negative aspect of the prostitute, right? So the negative aspect that everybody can imagine is when the prostitute is exchanging sex for money, right? Or it's basically um, exchanging something that is less than what we want ourselves to be in exchange for finances or personal gain or survival or some type of stability, right? But the positive aspect of the prostitute archetype is that she negotiates, or he, because it's not male or female energy, the prostitute architect negotiates all of our finances, all of our business, all of our exchanges in life, right? So she's negotiating and managing our finances and our business for our benefits. So what I've been doing over the last year is educating people around the prostitute archetype and helping them to manage their business and their finances in a positive way. Very interesting. I had no idea there were four archetypes. That's really fascinating. So as we sort of wind down, what do you see as a path forward for our country? And are you optimistic that a new day is dawning? How are you feeling? I mean, do you feel like we're going to see true equality in our lifetime? I'm very optimistic about the future. One thing that I had to learn over this lifetime of experience, like I said before, is that everything is happening for us, not to us. And everything that we've experienced over this last year is for us. It's for this country and it's for this world. Even the experiences that we had, unfortunately, with Trump and all the white supremacists storming the Capitol and the raids and the kidnappings and all of that, the shootings, while they are unfortunate, they are all happening for us because they have brought awareness that there is a problem that needs to be solved in this country. A lot of times what happens is that we get comfortable and we forget that there's things that need to be solved. There's work that needs to be done. And all of these activities that's been happening over the last four years has been rallying us up so that we can connect and join forces together so that we can solve this problem. It's waking everybody up, right? We have a lot of people that are woke now, and that's a good thing, right? Because now we can rally and join forces together. So I am absolutely positive about what's going to happen in the future, yes. Yeah, I have a good friend who talks about moving from activism to agitation, being agitators. And that that's kind of that next step of getting involved, diving in, even when it's uncomfortable and really making things happen. So yeah, I feel like there's a lot of positive things happening too. So I'm glad that you share that. As we close, can you leave us with one piece of advice that you either live by or you got from somebody over the years, or just something that really speaks to you? If you're going through hell, keep walking. That's what my grandmother always told me. Keep walking because there's light on the other side. That's important. This last year, going through COVID-19 and going through um, everything that we have politically, we may have felt that we were going through hell. You know, we've lost a lot of people. We've lost a lot of loves. You know, we've lost a lot of lives. Uh, we've lost a lot of businesses, money. We've lost a lot over the last year. So I can understand why. A lot of people can see it as going through hell, but my grandmother always told me that when you are going through hell, keep walking. I encourage everybody that's listening to this, whatever you're doing, whatever you're experiencing, keep walking. Yes, very good. Even if you're dragging your legs behind you, keep on going, right? Mm-hmm. If you can't walk, crawl, right? <laughs> if you can't crawl, then you can just scoop. That's keep right. moving. Keep moving. Yes. No. Well, thank you so much. Um, can you just tell our listeners where they can follow you or see more about you, find your website? 
Yes, absolutely. Social media platforms, you can reach me at Salah Ward. Uh, my name is spelled a little differently than normal. It's N-S-E-L-A-A. The N is silent. Ward, W-A-R-D. So Instagram, you can find me at Salah Ward. Twitter, you can find me at Salah Ward. LinkedIn at Salah Ward. Facebook at Salah Ward. My, my Facebook page is Salah Ward's fan page. If you want to reach me to help you with your business, then I'd love to connect with you on that level. And my firm name is Nava Firm. So the website is www.ninavafirm.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing with us so openly today about your journey and your path. And I know that there are lots of great things ahead for you. So we will certainly be watching to see what you do next. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the See It To Be It podcast. For more female empowerment, inspiration, and advice, subscribe to our free weekly newsletter featuring a new woman to watch each week. And check out over a thousand more featured women at onthedotwoman.com. Know someone we need to feature? Reach out at onthedotwoman on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.